Live. Scuba Obsessed is the weekly podcast. We talk about all things scuba diving from cool new gear, places to dive, and scuba news. Scuba Obsessed episode 252 is recorded live August 13th, 2015. Welcome back to Scuba Obsessed. I'm Darren Gilson coming to you from the west side of Michigan where I have returned. Joining me this week, we have Mac, the dive mentor. How are you doing today, Mac? I'm doing very well. Thank you. And it is beautiful weather. You know, it could be a tad bit warmer just so we know that we're in August, but be careful what you wish for. But it has been some nice weather. We did get a little bit of rain. What day was that that we had rain? Was that earlier in the week? It's, it's all blurring together now. It had to have been early because I spent last night and the night before, after midnight outside, looking for meteors for the meteor shower. Oh, well, how'd that go? Well, that's a subject. That's a, a different subject. But anyway, yesterday, last night was worse than the night before, meaning being able to see stuff. But I had more meteors last night. But I only saw a couple of good ones with tails. And some of them, you know, you got them out of the peripheral. It's like a half an inch of a streak and then a big poof white, yeah. you know, like bang, it just disappeared. Pretty neat looking at it. Well, they need to schedule yeah. those during the day hours if they want more uh, viewers. Well, you got to be up around four o'clock, and I'm usually back inside way before four. Yeah, my wife last night was was talking about. She goes, you know, it start. It's like best viewing between two and four a.m. Yeah, and that was not going to happen. Yeah, I was thinking about that when I, I stayed out there, and mosquitoes found me. So I'm huddled in a chair out in the backyard until about one. And I said, okay, that's fine. <laughs> well, I I might have. Uh, yeah, what I need to do is drink a gallon of water, and then I'm sure about 2 a.m. would would be when I'd be up. Yeah, well, it, it's definitely easy to find out where the airlines are, you know, the airwaves in the sky, because oh, yeah. you will see those guys in a pattern at a known frequency, excuse me, at a known frequency. So I kept thinking, maybe it'll be a UFO, maybe it'll be a UFO, whatever <laughs> it was. Damn it. They're, they're never when you're looking for them. No, or it's, you got your camera ready yeah, to it's, go. It's going to be your phone's dead, you're out of gas, you're middle of nowhere. And your camera battery is dead. Yeah. It's, but you can draw. <laughs> yeah, you're going to believe that too. <laughs> yeah. So let's jump right on into Scuba the News, a follow-up on an article we had talked about. Out of Wisconsin, Surgeon, Surgeon, you know those Surgeon Bays, Sturgeon Bay shipwreck has been designated National Historic, designated on the National Register of Historic Places. The Lakeland shipwreck located near Sturgeon Bay has been listed on National Register of Historic Places. Wisconsin Historic Society, historical, announced a designation earlier this week, which qualifies a shipwreck for grants and tax. What does a shipwreck need grants and tax credits? Because we know the shipwreck doesn't. It's for the people who are officiating the wreck, putting it on their register, oh, and goodness. trying to make some more money out of it. Oh, goodness. It's like, why? Why? Okay. Uh, Deputy State Historic Preservation Officer Diana Perconis said they important to designate places like these for preservation. Beginning as a bulk freighter in 1886, or Lakeland's demise in 1924, was one of the earliest Great Lake losses to be photographed. No, that's not even true. 
You can learn more about the Lakeland and other shipwrecks at wisconsinshipwrecks.org. Yeah, they used weasel words. One of, uh, Pecanus has gone into process of picking the Lakeland for designation and its history. Well, the pictorial they have there is very nice. And if you're a grubber, not to take anything, but to photograph grubbing things, that would be very nice. I really don't see what the depth is, but the visibility in this particular photo is very, very good. That is an excellent photo. And I like you how stuff's laying all around. The they'll destroy the, the integrity of that car, for example, that's in front of the boat. Yeah, but I, I like how everything's laid out. It's They don't seem to get the silt buildup and the sand movement that we do on this side. Yeah, you can see in part to this that it looks like clay. It's clear. Then you got sediment. Then you've got zebras all over that engine and the tires of that car. What's left of it? Yeah, because it looks like, do what they say, this is uh, 1924. So in the last 90 years, they've only had maybe two or three inches of bottom buildup. Now, some of those could be the sand higher in other places than what we're seeing in the photo. But yeah. hopefully it works out for them and what they wanted to get done. It's just, a, you know, it, from a standpoint of some sort of recognition, I guess it's kind of neat. Every area wants to have their thing, but I'm not quite sure what the purpose is. How many times can you protect something? I mean, how, how can you preserve it any more now than you did from 1924 when it sunk? Right. But that aside from that, because I'm a grumpy old man, <laughs> is, I was looking at some of the other comments. Yeah. Um, people in that area that live there and it's their wreck. It's a, I've flown over Door County many, many, many times and have seen many, many, many wrecks. If this wreck is going to get grant money, shouldn't the others as well? Then there'd be enough money to close the fairgrounds in Sturgeon Bay and move the dirty air and noise-polluting racetrack. So I think <laughs> we'll say, if you're going to spend money, there may be other items. The yeah. other person posted said, could the shipwreck possibly be on the west side of Sturgeon Bay, like near the new hotel condo that is being rammed through? So it looks like there may be ulterior motives that we didn't come up with. Yeah, but we, we didn't invent it this time. Bottom line is I'd like to go there and try that dive. That looks nice. Lots of wreckage. Uh, looks like a fun thing. Yeah, let's, uh, let me see. Can we figure out how deep that is? I couldn't tell if that was a picture that a diver in the background or not. It did not look, based on the light coverage, 60, 70 feet at most from that pictorial. I'm going to consult the great big book of everything. Uh, the Oracle. The Wiki Wonder. And let's see. It's a 280-foot freighter. All right. Okay. Shipwreck Explorer. She is broken up at that picture. Okay. She lies in 200 feet of water, upright and intact. The Lakeland carried a group of car of uh, cargo of cars and packaged goods, including Canadian whiskey, built as the Cambria, and it was renamed in 1910. The vessel was built in 1887, Globe Ironworks of Cleveland, 280 feet by 40 by 20. Depth to deck is 165 feet or 50 meters. Depth to bottom, 200 feet or 60 meters. So the deck level is what the bottom is on the Ann Arbor 5. Which means techie diver and you don't have a lot of time. Yeah. Which also means not a lot of recreational sport divers will be out there or ever see it. No, there won't be many. Let's but darn, see. it looks neat. It does. A good picture. Well, that kind of explains a little bit of why some of the stuff is still there and uh, the condition. Converted from a bulk freighter to passenger to a combination passenger and package freight steamer in 1910. She sprang a leak and foundered. Foul play insurance fraud was suspected but never proven. She was one of the first three steamers in the Great Lakes to have triple expansion engine. 
No, that's that's kind of unique. Triple expansion. I'm trying to remember. I'd have to ask my dad. He he kind of knows who had triple and you know the couple of the quads that were out there. Mm-hmm. So eighteen eighteen eighty seven. Okay, it kind of makes sense for when that was because that that's in the about the twenty years where that was really going. December fourth. Okay, so let's what do we got next up? We've got family of a missing scuba divers pushing for new regulations and just to get started like to our sympathy goes to anybody who's lost anybody scuba diving and we don't mean to make light of it but do we really need some more regulations the family of the british police officer who died in a diving accident off vancouver island is pushing the for changes to British Columbia's scuba diving industry, Timothy Chu, a 27-year-old experienced diver, was on a charter dive to race rocks on July 5th when he was reportedly swept away by strong current. Despite an extensive search, Chu's body was never found. This week, his family came to Vancouver Island from Hong Kong to visit the area where Chu disappeared. The family met with RCMP, search officials, and a diving guide who was with Chu when he was swept away as a search for answers in his death. Calling Chu's death preventable, his family said the current in the area was registered 5.5 knots at the time of his dive. That's a speed that the family considers dangerous. They're now asking the province to introduce new rules for an industry they say is largely unregulated, possibly mandating all divers wear a dive watch that carries a GPS locator and a surface marker buoy says, Chu's brother Joshua, one could wonder how much resources the province could save number of lives rescued if better legislation for the diving industry was in place. We hope that there's a legacy of Tim, said Timothy Chu's uncle Bill Chu, to somehow cause the legislation to be changed. Chu's family held an emotional prayer at Race Rocks during their visit to the island. They also thanked volunteers who helped in the search including one in particular, one of whom gave Timothy's mother a gift of a shawl that was dropped in the water near Race Rocks at the time of the accident as a gift to reminder of the hugs from Timothy, explained Joshua too. Chu. The family is offering a symbolic gift of $2,000 for anyone who helps find the body of Timothy Chu. And I can understand that, you know, they're heartbroken and it's a tragic event, but everything that they said, he could have on his own had. And they said an experienced diver, so they're trying to downplay that it was a mistake on his part. But if you're out diving, you know, they, they said that should be a requirement that he have a safe, safety sausage, which everybody who's out on any sort of dive conditions where you're going to be away from shore should have one. That's uh, our opinion. That's a, the, certainly my opinion. I, oh, dive right. I have to qualify that myself. When we're out, like say, pawpaw, shallow water, you can get away with not having a lot of that material because it's easy to see. You've got your dive flag also with you. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I think now, the- we know that when we're out there on the big lake, offshore, especially diving wrecks, where there is current, you definitely want a safety sausage because when you got two and three foot waves, you can't see that guy sitting there in a the trough trying to make noises. Yeah. And for those who might not understand what a safety sausage is, just think of a long tube or it's actually uh, about four or five inches wide eight ten feet high it's usually made of vinyl vinyl that's it's uh, glued together and you put air into it sometimes they have a closed bottom sometimes it's open uh, but you put air into it and it, it just makes this big inflated tube kind of like a really skinny lift bag and you put one end down in the water and it causes it to stand up and it makes you a, a lot more visible when you're out there not to mention a lot of them have a pocket in it that you can put a chem light so it'll be illuminated especially at night or a yep. strobe 
They also have a radar reflector or even putting a CD in there gives you that reflection surface. Yeah, and, and for a radar reflector, if, you, if you're on a boat who's, who's out in the water and they're looking, that's something that the radar that some of these larger boats would have would reflect off of and it would be an anomaly and it would help clue them in maybe where you're at. Right. But you've got that. You've also got these EPIRPs, which I also think is a good item. It just it's a, it can be a little expensive, and everybody's got to take their own decision on how much money they want to spend. I think you can get the the personal ones, which they're in a waterproof case of the battery. Some of them uh, you can have a panic switch. Uh, some of them, when you get to the surface, it opens up. So it depends on what its condition. Why you know he got swept away? How long before? something happened i mean did he hit his head instantly was unconscious that's a little bit different a situation than if he had been if he was floating for a couple days and then expired so uh, but it's always good to have some of these items and you it's it's up to you to decide how safe you want to be patty in their courses advanced divers uh, advanced diving they cover these items that that they recommend Uh, and it's it's a trade-off between you know, making the sport too expensive and making it accessible. A lot to me is really what is your safety worth you? And again, if you have problems and you drown and you're on the bottom, that doesn't help a bit. You've got to be on the surface for the GPS to work. Right. And for any of the signals they might have, radio or otherwise. So part of it is you've got to still have control to get buoyant and on the on the surface for whatever you do have to work, sausage or other device. Yeah, it, but in the case of where you couldn't deploy that, you were already expired, then it, it, it doesn't make a difference at that point other than recovery and for the family. Yeah. Uh, uh, personal locator beacon, if, if I'm out someplace by myself doing solo dives, it's not a bad idea to have that. I mean, a cell phone is good. And that'll do the same thing, basically, if you know you've got reception where you're going to be. If you got reception, and I personally wouldn't take my cell phone out there in the water just because of cost. Again, it's not as expensive in some cases as the uh, emergency device, but it's still a lot of money to have get soggy. Well, that's why you buy those uh, the ten dollar the ten dollar phones, <laughs> the, the ones that drug d- drug dealers use. Well, basically, you might say that, or jumpers use the same thing. You get a cheap phone because if you're going to dummy it up and break it or lose it, you know, yeah. it, you're not out that much money. You're not going to take your iPhone with you. Oh, I see what you're saying. I, I think I like that idea because that one you could actually you keep in your in your float like we normally have. So yeah. if I had a heart attack and I'm alive, at least I can come up and flip it open. If I'm dead, it doesn't make any difference. They're going to find me because I got my flag tied to my body. Yeah. No, no. But again, good idea. If I had the money, I'd probably have a real super duper one. But when you're out in the big lakes, uh, yes. that system, at least having a man overboard on your boat, is really, really good. Mm-hmm. Now, what could, the, what could the boat have done? Uh, because they knew right away that something had happened. If you were thinking, could you have thrown some sort of float in the water to travel with him? Generally, that's what you would do. Uh, that way, if you if you threw one out, you timed it, threw another one out. And they're floating on the surface. You got a reference point for how far did one travel before the second one released. And then if you know the current flow and that's representative of a floating body, you have an idea where you should be looking. If they're on the surface, follow the buoy. They should be in the same area. And in, in, in kind of one spot we didn't really cover, we, we mentioned a little bit before the show, but they said the, the current was registering five and a half knots. Which is pretty freaking strong. Yeah, so that's that's zipping by. 
and yeah. uh, you know it's it's up to everybody to determine what is dangerous. Now you've you've dove in five and a half knots. Let me rephrase that. I've not. I have dove in it, but I go with the current because you're not going to swim against it. No. Now, if you go to St. Clair, and that's probably the fastest, so one of the fastest ones around here because we don't have a lot of tides, but the the Detroit River in that area, the St. Clair River, averages probably four knots. Depending on the time of day, the phase of the moon, all sorts of variables, I've seen it anywhere from averaging two and a half to a little over four knots, and that's just surface. It's it's enough on a, on a good day, you get there and you try to be on a wreck, you look out to the to the blowy side, it'll rip your mask off. It'll give you a free flow. Yes. All right. And that's why you do the Superman dive and you go with the flow. And that's when you definitely want to have visibility. And and that's really a, a matter of perspective. If you're going with it, you can have an enjoyable dive at those speeds. But if yeah. you're if you're if you're fighting against it or if you're on a line that's uh, which is basically making you stationary in five and a half knot waters, yeah. that, that's that can be rough. That's not fun at all. No. Now, how fast do you think it was the Cooper River when we were in there? Uh, well, depends. That one one I, <laughs> I, I had to hook in the bottom, and I'm just being drugged for the whole freaking hour. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that one, I bet that was every bit of three knots. Yes. I, I If I had a good purchase, I could go against it, but it wasn't giving me a free flow. Yeah. Well, we, I, I did not enjoy that one in, in zero viz going backwards, no. Yeah, it was it was hard to, to do what you were trying to do while you were down there. Yeah, uh, and like you said, I I was able to get purchase a few times, and you could move against the current, but it was a lot of work. Yeah, and then we have a group raising money in Ohio for breast cancer. This one's out of Gibsonburg, Ohio, twenty five feet below the surface. Carol Hall and her husband Mike Mulvaney uh, pass a sunken cabin of a cruiser, and that's in the photo in the article. You can see all our links in the show notes, so you can go back to the original sources, give them some click love. And this one is actually done in Gibsonburg at White Star Quarry, which is the home of a friend of ours, Rich Sinowick, Diver's Sink. And also you need to check out his podcast, Diver's Sink. I think I said that twice. It's, it's Divers Incorporated, his dive shop. Diver's Sink is the podcast. Uh, but he had, uh, let's see, what day was this? This is in August. August 1st, they had the sixth annual Dive Hope Breast Cancer Fundraiser for the Breast Cancer Fund of Ohio, the event, the event drew divers from throughout Ohio, neighboring states, and raised roughly $17,000, according to organizer Brian Miller. Uh, Miller was of Baltimore, uh, from Baltimore as a manufacturer sale rep for diving equipment maker Aqualog, who was the main sponsor for the event. He inspired to organize the event by watching his grandniece battle leukemia. And there was a lot of dive shops that were there. There's a lot of prizes and hopefully next year we'll have to keep an eye out for it that would be one i'd like to go to they had a lot of uh fundraising a lot of good items they did at a silent auction where the deals are pretty nice it's a good event a worthwhile cause okay i've got through all my pre-loaded articles now i gotta go back and go through internet hell and try and get the next one to load well i like the next one you're doing which is going to be on water rescue team and their training yeah, this, you can never say too much about the rescue teams that we have in our area, and especially out west where they have their flash floods. Oh, yes. And they're, they're sorely needed, and this year was a good example out there out west. I was watching a TV program last week, and they were showing a flash flood, and it was like nothing I'd ever seen before. It looked like pudding moving down 
a dried riverbed because it had this, you know, the, the water, the, in the case of a flash flood, the rains may be 20, 50 miles away and they come down and it was, they had a video just showing it moving and all the debris and everything that's caught into it. And if you weren't paying attention and like how we talked about in the last article, the speed, you, know, you can't run that quick. That can, <laughs> if you're there when that happens, it's, it's pretty much going to be fatal. Uh, and this water rescue team, the training monthly, it was formed in 2000 and, uh, the, the team was formed in May of 2000 after drowning the river where rescuers needed more than two hours to locate the victim. It was really unorganized. He said the decision was then made for the original eight members to seek out training and certification as public safety divers. So this is out of Cumberland. Do they say everybody assumes, you know, where they're at. <laughs> Cumberland, Rhode Island. That's not where I was expecting. I wasn't either. I was thinking Cumberland Gap, things like yeah, that. All, all, all bad songs going through my head. But they've gone through and gotten certification. Team's done quite well. They have a 16-foot trailer designated Marine One, housed at the Cumberland Rescue Headquarters to provide equipment storage and a place to change into and out of gear for the members. Trailer also include, in, includes an inflatable rapid deployment craft. Stored in a two-foot-by-two-foot two bag can be inflated 14-foot long, four feet wide, one minute using a scuba air tank. So they've got training and uh, they've got rescue training. They've got ice training. Uh, Shields is a certified water rescue instructor, ice rescue instructor, swift water rescue instructor. And he's currently training to become a scuba instructor. And I like this part that he's doing. He says he's providing water and safety presentations to all schools within the town the Boys and Girls Club, and Cumberland High School Aquatics Program. So it's important to make people aware. You know, the worst, the thing that's worse than one tragedy is two. <coughs> and that seems to happen. You can't say too much about these people because generally, like volunteer fire departments, it's the people in the, in the neighborhood, in the area that are providing this service on their time, their dime, to make you safer. Yes. So and, and so support them. Off all of those guys. Yeah. So support them as much as they can, because uh, it's, it's a challenge. There's other people and other groups who are getting the money. Not saying they're not justified, but you look at this group. It's all volunteer. They're buying their own gear and they're doing a, a needed service that benefits the community. Now, as a side note, I can't remember which one of our fire departments around here uh, could not get funding for their river rescue. Uh, for a boat because they've only had one rescue requirement in five years. But what they did do was they bought a new device. It's uh, basically a buoy gun, and it shoots a line up to 300 feet. When it hits the water, at the end of the line is an inflatable vest. So if you're within 300 feet, they can shoot that to you and give you a chance to put on something that's going to float you in the neck and tow you in. Yeah, and that's some of the challenge we have locally. And it may be a needed challenge, but like here in the town that I live in, our fire department does have a water rescue team. Uh, they It's it's administered by the fire department. Uh, they have a boat. Uh, now, we have a, in the town, a river runs right through the center. It's a very popular river. There's a lot of activity. So by the fire department having that boat, it enables them to do quick response. And the alternative would be members of the fire department using their own boat. So it's a little misleading to say that there's uh, for another group to not have a need because they didn't respond. It just means that people didn't necessarily get in trouble. Uh, so well, you, you know what was interesting about that aspect, what you're talking about getting in trouble? 
do you realize that if that fire department or system has that 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 train that gun to be able to shoot a line out and to try to rescue somebody mm-hmm. that because of having that in their possession if all the people in that department are not trained on using it and then a, a, a fatality occurs they can then be sued because they didn't have trained qualified personnel to use the equipment in which they had which could have saved the person which yeah. then a lot of people say well I just won't get it then well, that's and that's unfortunately with a litigious society what we've got to go through. Uh, and you know, I, if you want to look at probably the, some of the best trained or people who receive the most training, it's the fire departments around here. It's a ridiculous amount of training. I I would like to do it, but I can't. I couldn't have devoted the time. I was on the sheriff's department, and the firemen were were out training us two to three times. Yeah, the, the, well, to, to be proficient and to keep yourself safe, you have to practice. And that requires dedication and time of the people because, again, most of that volunteer. Yep. You've got to practice, and you're, you're practicing skills that you practiced previously. It, it's every two to three years you're, you're, getting, you're renewing that training. Now, kind of back on the local the fire departments, we also have at the county level, which we, we've, we've done some work with them in the past, that they have a rescue team. So you've got this overlap, which it's not a bad overlap, but the, the county level – it's not as much of a quick response because by the time you, you – know, we got a big county. By the time you get the county called and they go out, you've got at least 30 to 40 minutes. In warm weather, uh, if somebody's underwater, 40 minutes is too long. General, around here, it's recovery. It's not saving. Yes. Uh, now, where that boat that uh, Bering Springs has used is it's a – you call it, it's like a bass boat, and they've got uh, something that flips out the front of it, kind of a deck. So if you have somebody who's, you know, uh, say they were skiing and they got hit by another boat or had a heart attack, and it's you, you it's hard to muscle them in over the side of a boat. They've got this platform that they can flip out that's about water level that you can roll somebody on, and then you can get them back into a boat ramp. Very nice. I like going. In fact, uh, coming up this next week for those who listen to the podcast, next week won't be the show like we normally do. I think we may do a best of, uh, but we have the fair and they do have one day. So if you're in Berrien County, Michigan, you want to go to the youth fair, they do have a safety day where all the different divisions and departments bring out their gear. So if you want to see what the Coast Guard's using or the water rescue team, the dive team, you know, tactical response unit, you get to see all that stuff, you know, ask questions, the guys that use it, see it up close. You know, I geek out on that stuff. So if you want to volunteer like these people do, uh, maybe you don't have as much time, but they, there are some opportunities. Look around. Connecticut River Watershed Council is organizing a river cleanup this fall, this out of Saxons River, Vermont. They said it's going to be the Connecticut River Watershed Council's 19th annual Source to Sea Cleanup, be held Friday and Saturday, September 25th and 26th, 2015. They said there's several ways that you can be involved in the cleanup. You can report trash that site that needs cleaning up you can find a cleanup group near you to join or organize and register your own local cleanup group they give a website which is www.ctriver.org forward slash cleanup the source to see cleanup is a two-day event and involves four states 410 plus miles of connecticut river basin from new hampshire vermont massachusetts and connecticut thousands of volunteers are expected to participate and some people are on foot, some are on boat. 
So they need volunteers of all sorts, some to remove trash along the river, streams, park, boat launches, trails, and more. Because if it's on the bank, it's going to eventually end up in the river. In 2014, 2,000 volunteers hauled 47 tons of trash. To date, 879 tons of trash had been removed from polluting the rivers. I've not seen anything of that magnitude in our area. It would be... Well, it sounds like they, what they've done, and they, and being as long as they've done it, they organized it slowly over time. Uh, but you have a nice long river that touches many states, and you gave you a good platform, 410 miles. That's a long way. And so you can get it motivated. They're consistent. They've, they've done it regularly. They're probably well organized. And uh, they're doing it grassroots where they've got, you know, many hands make light work. Uh, for us around here, other than the Great Lakes themselves, there's not that many long rivers. You know, St. Joe, which we're on, uh, that does come, I think it, it goes down to South Bend and then back in the Michigan. Does it go back in Indiana again? Yeah. So, so it goes back between Michigan and Indiana. I'm going to guess that'd probably be maybe 100 miles. Uh, there are there are some groups, but I haven't seen anything quite this well organized. And part of the big issue with that is, what do you do with the stuff when you bring it up? You have to have a way of disposing it that does not cost a volunteer or something. Right. The volunteers shouldn't be shouldering the expense for removing the trash. Yeah. Uh, and I think an organizing group should be able to get a uh, should be able to get a you know a municipal dump or somebody to be involved. Uh, you know, work on a garbage collection organization, and maybe they'd yeah, be soon interested. As, yeah, as soon as you start bringing up refrigerators, junk cars, bulky items, you need a place to dispose of it, and how are you going to get that junk car out of the water? Yeah, that's some of that stuff might. Oh, and that's that's why they've got the program where they're asking people to identify stuff. So yeah. they've obviously got some pre-planning they're going to do. So you're going to have just some random collecting of of garbage as well as. Uh, I can remember in the 70s and 80s, there would be some cleanups that would happen. The rivers were, it looked like somebody's house had just been completely packed. And then here we go. This one's off uh, Florida. Reef building begins off Beaverd Coast, Brevard Coast, B-R-E-V-A-R-D. On uh, Friday of last week, deployment began for 72 tons of man-made artificial modules they said it was accumulation of more than a year's worth of work between several uh, fishing-related nonprofits and Brevard County. The Florida Sports Fishing Association has been active reef building program in cooperation with the Canaveral Port Authority for the past decade. Friday's efforts marked the first time since 1995 that the county government has been actively involved in reef building. We started this work with the county just after the 2004 hurricane season. The FSFA was involved in a number of cleanup projects for derelict vessels overseen by the Brevard County. Several derelict vessels, including concrete and metal hulled vessels, were ideal for reef use, but first they had to be decontaminated to make sure they didn't pose a threat to marine life or environment. They said, we are on the lookout for approved materials, and sometimes they can be really hard to find, but we were able to get these ready and deploy them on, a, on the uh, culvert site. Now I see peop, more people fishing there in the fish than the natural bottom along the 27 Fathom Ridge. And it looks like they were, so what they did in the Brevard Reef area, which they say covers 4.4 square miles or 3,000 acres, uh, they were making concrete structures. 
It said each module is a 10-foot square footprint, several holes to the side that allow fish and sea turtles and other sea creatures to enter and exit at will. Uh, they're manufactured out of marine-grade concrete. Uh, 24 of them cost $60,000. So it's about two and a half grand per concrete piece. Now, is that to make? Just 60000 to make? It sounds like it. That, that's interesting from the aspect of what's allowable type of materials. Never really thought about what that actually means. Well, I mean, I'm trying not to do the mistake they did with the tires. Uh, but also, I think there's a specific... Uh, type of concrete they want to use because you can have different mixtures of concrete and they don't want something that uh, creates the wrong pH or other problems. Also, I'm sure that when they make them, there's certain mold releases that they may not want to use in the marine, that if they're going to be in a marine environment. Said if we can find the money, we'd like to do this every year. It just helps fishing and diving get better and better. Well, hats off to them. They're doing a real good job. It looks like it's paying off in dividends. I'm given habitats for more fish, which is always good for the ocean. I think something like that would that would be a go really well around here. And that sixty foot depth probably would be. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at the price they spent all together. It looks like about a hundred thousand dollars on it. Fifteen thousand for a survey and permitting process, which they said they started three years ago. Then you've got the concrete, which is another sixty thousand dollars. Then you've got logistics and placing it in the water. I'm sure that their price didn't include that. And here's something that's nice. They give you the reef coordinates in the, the article. And you can be sure if you're a fisherman, you want those coordinates. Yeah, you just go out there and look for the spot where all the boats are bobbing around. <laughs> yes. Yeah. See, and, and that's where you know, they say it's good for divers and anglers. I think the, the better it is for anglers, the worse it is for divers. Right. The intake structure out there in front of... Uh, the waterworks is really great for perch. Uh-huh. So you're not going to be diving in the tunnels or the that structure when they're out there. Right. It's kind of whoever's there first yeah. gets to use it. And, di- and the thing is, if you're a fisherman, wait the divers out. They don't have a lot of air. They're not going to be down there forever. Go find yeah. another spot. You can come back and they'll they'll get off it. Uh, now, how's this for a find? A teenager finds a gold bar while swimming. This is in the German Alps. The police are currently trying to figure out the source of the gold bar. The teenager made an unexpected find while swimming in a lake in the German Alps, a 500-gram or 17.6-ounce bar of gold. Police said Wednesday they were trying to figure out where the bar comes from and how it got to the Klongedes Lake. <laughs> Everybody from Germany is groaning. A popular tourist destination near, oh, my goodness. At the Birchish Garden. Ah, very been, good. I've been in that lake, and that's, uh, I love Birchish Garden, too, by the way. Nice and you place. left a gold bar there? What can I say? I wasn't diving at that time. <laughs> that bordered with Austria. 16-year-old girl who was on vacation found it about two meters. I thought they said a boy. Maybe I just was thinking that. 16-year-old girl who was on vacation found it about two meters, six and a half feet under the surface on Friday and handed it to police. Divers on Tuesday carried out through a search of the area to see if there's any more. Oh, heck yeah. What, what, I, what this part about handed it to police? I don't understand that part. <laughs> what? <laughs> Something's wrong. Well, and that's one thing. I don't know what the rules are over there, but I hope if they fail to identify who it goes to, give it back to the girl. She should get to keep it. Now, looking at that, they show a picture of it. That where at the bottom, what does that? It looks like the all-seeing eye is what you look at that. I would have normally expected to see some other figure in there. I'm not going to tell you what it is, but you know which it is. Yeah. Because that lake is supposed to have got other items such as that uh-huh. in it. 
I wonder if they can tell the age of it. Is that? Well, they're just saying it's 99.9% fine gold and the USSA, or is that a USSR? A little hard to look at that stamp there. D-E-G-U-S-S, yeah. But the scrape marks along the bottom is what really interests me. Yeah, like a prop hit. Oh, okay. As it dropped out of the boat, the prop hit it. I guess that could be. Yeah. I, I was just wondering if maybe somebody had, I don't know, it just it was a funny wear mark to me, but I guess if a prop hit it, that would make sense. I, you know, when they said divers on Tuesday carried out a thorough search, I hope they italicized quotes on both sides of thorough because <laughs> I sure be out there looking around. <laughs> well, then also, did who who checked the guys who were looking for it? The girl was honest. Who knows about the people <laughs> who were. Hey, wait, there's five they more of these bars. Like, wait, four, three. Well, yeah, they, they got people like you and me out there. You know, we're honest. <laughs> They're in trouble. <laughs> I, if I went out for official business, I'd turn it over. I I, I don't know. That, that'd be one where you'd like to say you wouldn't, but I'd be too darn honest. I'd give it. A, I'd have to give it back. Darn it. <laughs> Question but, is, give it back to who? Yeah. Well, I would certainly be following up on it, making sure that they just don't sit on it and then sell it at a an auction. And how about this for finding something? Identity of a Finnish shipwreck millionaire is currently a mystery. Ninety years ago, the Canteva steamboat sending its payload of 290 metric tons of copper sank. This is in the Baltic Sea. They said the current market value of the copper is estimated at 1 million euros. They said they still have no clues who the rightful owner may be. Around a week ago, a group of divers completed their investigation of the wreck at 90-year-old steamship laden with copper. The vessel was discovered in the Lagascar, and I'm, I'm sure I didn't roll the right vowels there, island in the island archipelago in 2013. Canteva, the steamboat, sank to the bottom of the Baltic Sea near the entrance of the Gulf of Bothnia between Finland and Sweden. The marine archaeologist says he's confident he has established the vessel as the Canteva due to its location, make, and fittings. According to ship's papers, one of the owners around the year 1925 was a certain Juho Kaskin, a farmer, MP, and municipal council advisor. According to Lindholm, Kaskin's descendants can still claim ownership of the vessel. However, the question is, who does the nearly 1 million euros of copper rightfully belong to? And this is where they talk about the law. They said it's a little bit more complicated uh, than this finder's keepers. Although it's maybe possible to identify the boat's rightful owners, that doesn't mean that they have legal rights to its content. The Finnish state cannot claim the bounty as it's been less than 100 years since the vessel sank. Therefore, the wreck is not considered a protected site. And they said also, since gold, uh, copper from this era may contain gold, it could be worth even more. They said miners didn't have the ability to extract the precious metal, so it's likely gold is buried within the less valuable metal. I didn't realize that. So in the 1900s, we still didn't have the technology to get gold out of copper. Not to the extent that we do now. Okay. Probably wasn't worth as much or than to the amount of effort it would take to extract. Uh, Do they say how deep that was? I, I saw something in here of uh, 100 meters, 90 meters. Yeah. Couldn't tell if that was the depth. Yeah, the dives that followed extended to 90 meters. Yeah. So that's not something you're going to casually go down to and work with either. Well, and that's why they said that it had been missing so long. 
is because the location they said is real hard and it wasn't really obvious it was there and that's deep so a million dollars in material so they just need to go and figure out who's got who who it belongs to yeah and talking about finding something this would be an an excellent find to have in a shipwreck many times that we get shipwrecks there's not a lot to them but in this particular case they had the figurehead this is a 15th century shipwreck the wreck of the grib shudden the vessel is thought to have sunk in 1495 in the waters off Sweden. It is considered to be one of the best preserved of its kind. The wooden figurehead is of a sea monster with ears like a lion. A crocodile's jaw was carefully lifted from the sea in southern Sweden on Tuesday by divers bringing up treasure from the wreck of a 15th century Danish warship. The figurehead came back from the wreck of Gribschuden, which is believed to have sunk in 1495 after it caught fire in its way from Copenhagen to Kalmar on Sweden's east coast. Although the hull suffered extensive damage, the remaining bits make it one of the best preserved wrecks of its kind, dating from roughly the same period as Christopher Columbus's flagship Santa Maria. Last time it looked at the world, Leonardo da Vinci and Christopher Columbus were still living. That is very cool. The pictures of it underwater look better than the ones on the surface after being preserved. Did you notice that? Yeah. Maybe it's just because we have our underwater eyes. Plus, it was bloated. When you is, Now, this one down below, is that after it's preserved or that's when they brought it up? Well, that's what I was trying to do. The uh, video is on, and it's got the ads you have to go through before you can take a look at it. I was trying to see what it said about that. Yeah. When you have something that's that old, it's been waterlogged that long. Once it gets up, it can start to go pretty quick. Be future ready with Dell Open Networking Solutions, powered by Intel Technology. And I hate it when you can't turn the sound off. <laughs> yeah, you gotta you gotta hunt for it. So Johan Ronby, they show him in the photo seeing it underwater. And I, I it looks amazing underwater. Yeah. I want you to remember this site, this particular one. Because mm-hmm. uh, I I had now nah, there were some links to a uh, a new submarine found and the pictures are outstanding, but we'll go into that next week. Okay, we'll cover we'll cover that next time. Yeah, this this particular website we've run a, we've run across quite a few good items, and again these will be in the show notes. Well, yeah, I'll, that's, that's really nice. That millionaire one that's that's the one that has some links that you want to look at later. Just okay. as a clue. I think the next one's right up our alley. Yeah, this one is a uh, four trucks and a scuba diver needed a tow. Uh, Castle Hain. North Carolina, two towing companies had to work together Sunday to get a truck out of the water. Viewer Philip Nadu uh, sent WWAY, which is the, the network, who Channel 3, who's reporting on this, pictures from the boat ramp. And that truck does not look like it's in too good a condition. Oop, did I lose you, Mac? No, I'm just trying to figure out why it took them so many hours to get that truck out. I, still I, there? Yeah, I'm still here. I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to think about uh, well, for one thing, he said uh, it took eight hours, four trucks, two scuba divers to get out. He says in 10 years, he's only had to use his diving equipment six times. Maybe you shouldn't be doing it in your diving equipment if that's all you've used your gear. Now, maybe he means just for recovery. I, I suppose, but I'm looking at, they've got the windows out of the truck, and they've got a, a big keeper strap lifting it by the, 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 the truck's hood. It's like... Where it's at, all you had to do is hook it to the front and drag it out with a regular tow truck. That's what I'm wondering. Is is it maybe 
that it, I don't know, got turned underwater. I, it, uh, you, you're going to need the divers to go down and rig it up. Yeah, a diver. Right. And then you can get a pretty good suction underneath it yeah, in the muck. So it could have had a, a, you know, an underneath suction, which might be why they use the crane. Uh, they probably didn't have lift bags because lift bags would have eliminated this if that was the issue. Yeah, because I'm, I'm looking at the docks on both sides. <laughs> you had How to... did that truck go? It's going to hit a dock. Yeah. yeah. So it, it's amazing to me. I just don't understand. Uh, must have been entertaining. <laughs> yeah, I bet it was. Not for them, though. Now, how about this coming? You know, we talked about that figurehead. This was out of, the, out of the Thames River in England. I would love to dive there, I think. Now, I'm going to dive in my Viking <laughs> so I could be hosed off. But they said it was they, they brought up a rare and well-preserved 350-year-old gun carriage described as a national treasure been raised from the depths of a 17th century shipwreck. The wooden carriage remains almost pristine condition after being buried in silt since the warship in London accidentally exploded and sank in the Thames estuary in 1665. So the estuary is really the part of the river that goes out into the ocean then. Uh, the carriage had lain undisturbed until yeah. now when concerns are being deteriorated prompted historic England to step in. Working a team of amateur divers from Leon C. Essex. It was lifted from the seabed yesterday and returned to shore today. Archaeologist Allison James says it's a hugely significant wreck. The London is the only ship of its kind surviving on the seabed. It's really a time capsule which can provide us with so many insights. Now it's been lifted, we can begin to look at how the carriage was made. It is a great relief to have successfully lifted it. Archaeology can be a destructive process as you are taking artifacts out of their natural environment, so it's great to see it safely on shore. The carriage is, ex is estimated to weigh one ton, is 5 foot 2 inches or 1.6 meters long, and 2.3 feet or 0.7 meters wide. It was discovered about 60 feet, 18 meters below the surface by teams of divers led by a husband and wife, Stephen and Carol Ellis from Lee Lay. Last summer, over the past eight months, parts of the carriage became exposed, placing it at risk of breakup due to the strong currents and exposure to sea worms. It was lifted using a 20-ton crane barge with divers on hand to ensure the fragile wood was protected and did not dry out. The ship was part of uh, an English convoy sent in 1660 to collect Charles II from the Netherlands and restore him to the throne in an effort to end the anarchy which followed by the death of Oliver Cromwell in 1658. Unfortunately, she sank on March 7, 1665 in an accidental explosion. Their times don't quite line up there, but I think I'm just misunderstanding this is the carriage will be taken to York. The young lady we go with on the river last year. Yeah, she's over there now. That's what I'm saying. She's got the kind of job we'd like to have. Oh, yeah. Uh, she is up and out, always in England, doing that exactly the same type of work. Yeah, and you have to have an archaeologist. So you've got the paperwork and the degree and the experience that gets you in a lot of places. Yeah. It looks like fun. But that, that, that is awesome down there. I just wonder how they're going to preserve it, what they're going to do. I'm I was hoping to see if I re recognize anybody in the picture there. Yeah, that's what I was doing because I know she's over there. Yeah. Uh, but I don't see her in the picture because she works with somebody fairly famous. We'll have to have her. I've been wanting to have her on the show. I was going to wonder if you were going to do that one day. Well, I, I've mentioned it to a few times. She's got some ideas of what she wants to do 
for some programs. And I think she's, it's a case of she's got a few too much going on. Oh, yeah. But I think if what we just need to do is pick a date, have her and her crew come over, and we'll do something. Yeah, we'll have to pick a date when she doesn't have her traveling shoes on. Who knows? I'm, I'm hoping that we might be able to get her about the same time she was here last year. Yeah. Now that we know her, then we'll, we'll, we can put something together and be a little bit ahead of the, the game. Well, that does it for Scuba the News. We have a few uh, potentially cool scuba gear stories. I put this in cool scuba gear. They're saying, can science build a better lionfish trap? Interesting project. I like, I mean, it's simple. Looks like it'd be easy enough to make, but what prevents other fish from getting in there? So what's unique about it for lionfish? Well, that's what they, they kind of do in the restalling is I'm trying to get this darn article to open up. I need a I need a row of computers, one for each news article. Can science bring can science build a better line fish trap? Uh, Drew Bukowski of the University of Miami, who's participating in the Central Caribbean Marine Institute Institute's RAU research experience for undergrads program in Little Cayman. Let's string some more nouns together. The idea is to add to the current culling effort. Says the current calling effort, especially in Little Cayman, is really focused on the reef ecosystems. Divers will go out with spears, and when you're d- diving, you want to go in the pretty sites. You'll spear at the marine park. The focus of the project is finding a suitable trap for juvenile linefish. We want to catch them as they're juveniles in the mangroves and seagrass ecosystem before they get the opportunity to spawn. He's testing a variety of traps, one of which takes a twist on traditional Cayman fish pot. Lionfish are cryptic species, which means you'll find them in the nooks and crannies of the reef. We're also trying to offer a structure in a rather structureless habitat, which will entice them in. He told Cayman 27 lionfish have found their way into traps before, mainly as bycatch and lobster fisheries. He hopes the traps can help fortify existing culling efforts. It's a big leap for a project to at least to catch our first lionfish in one of the minnow traps off the dock so we can now work. We know they prefer those habitats to step in the right direction for sure. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a noble thing, but like you said, how do you not get bycatch? Yeah. Or do you have the traps and you watch them regularly so you can release the bycatch? If the bycatch doesn't die and you know where all the traps are, then it might not be a bad thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> of course, the bycatch might get eaten by the lionfish, but I don't know how that will work out. And it's something I know that you're always interested in. Here's a personal submarine. Yes. I sent you another copy of that uh-huh. with a better picture. It's my color, yellow. And uh, this one I like a little better because it has some underwater shots as well as surface shots. So this is the personal scuba submarine goes pedal power to electric. The Scoopster is a brainchild of a French diving enthusiast who came with a new concept of personal submarine. Instead of only going forward, it's capable of climbing, sinking vertically, diving, rising, traveling backwards, rotating on its vertical axis. After three years of testing their prototype and winning the Innovation Award for Underwater Vehicle-Equipped Scuba with increased maneuverability, they are now enhancing their craft. The project started back in 2009. After a couple years of hard work, they managed to participate in the 11th International Submarine Race in Bethesda Naval Surface Warfare USA, and uh, we've we've covered that before in the program. That's a race that started in 1989. They've been having it ever since. It's it's uh, the races are being held. It says twice a year. I think the races are every other year, but I could be wrong. 
As we mentioned, they managed to win the prize for innovation, which is enough to encourage your effort to commercialize the watercraft. So to use the craft, you had to be both an experienced diver and capable of pedaling to create the power to move the sub. Said, uh, since you're also fighting the drag of pushing one's legs through the water, the team has come up with a solution to ease the ride. The second model of the, of the Scoopster, the Scoopster Nemo. Why does everybody use Nemo for underwater names? This enhanced model comes with proper e-assistance as they added electric motors to contraption. Okay, now you've got it. Optional equipment is dive lights, video cameras, surface nautical navigation aids. The Sussex submarine engines, the new version, comes with can move at 10-foot-long Nemo at five knots for an hour. Ah, that's not too bad. Uh, it's your typical wet tub. Yeah. Only with, you know, better. It looks cosmetically, it's very nice. Go back to the 1960s, popular mechanics, when you could get, or popular science, and you get the plans for a couple of wet tubs. So we've, we've advanced more in the materials we're using, you know, the canopy and the uh, fiberglass, as we are to what we used 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. Pretty yeah. nice, though. Doesn't I'll, give a price. Well, they, they, it's on a Kickstarter, so I need to go look it up on Kickstarter. Um, but with 750 euros or $825, you get a half day underwater joyride. I was hoping that would buy it. <laughs> but that tells me it's already going to be pricey if that's all you can get for a right. half day. The one you've got, if you go to that link I sent you, mm-hmm. take a look at it compared to what you've got here. You'll be a little surprised. Yeah, I'm looking at the one that you sent in the link, and those are some excellent pictures. I'd like the, the design of the other one, but you got to hoof and pedal that. But on this one here, this looks electric. Look at that motor on that. That's, yeah, it, not, that's not a pedal. Yeah, no, the, on this one, it's electric. This is the new model. Uh-huh. But I, I don't, I like the shape of the other one better. I think they spent more time in the other one. Maybe this is to get it towards manufacture ready. Yeah. Let's see, you can visit their website. Their website is scubster.org. Let's see, do they have... It says Kickstarter here. I'm, I'm trying to see. They should have a link. You would think on their website they would have a link to click Kickstarter. Now, I like the little part where they say, in terms of specs, looking at carbon fiber body craft can dive to 200 feet, which implies that only experienced divers should take it to the limit. Yeah, I, I'd say that's probably a pretty positive statement. Implies. Anybody has one out there you'd like to test it out in Lake Michigan, uh, we'd be more than happy to give it a shot. Yeah, the, you, you can't sell it anywhere in the world if you haven't tried it out in Lake Michigan. That That's really your proving ground for anything cool like this. Of course, we'd, we'd have to administer it. You, know, you don't want people, untrained people dealing yeah, with it. It'd be a struggle, but we could find the time to do that. Yeah. And I can't, it's, boy, they need to worry work on promotion because if you got a Kickstarter program going on, it'd be nice to... To be able to see it, yeah, they're not to worry about saltwater corrosion or any any of that. Yeah. Oh, we, we, it cleans itself as as it goes. So I'm going to take a peek at Kickstarter and see if we can find it. Okay, it looks like it just started. Here, let me paste you the details. I think we're going to do more promoting for it than they are. But here it is on Kickstarter. If you need to find it. You can either go to our website for the show notes, or you can go to Kickstarter and just search for Scoopster. It comes up. As of the night we're recording this, they had two backers and $119 raised uh, out of their $16,357 goal. They have 53 days to go. And they're going to have a hard time getting... Okay. 
It's in French most of the time, and sometimes it's in English. Oh, I see. It's kind of almost like uh, if you ever seen one of the, the like some of those air cars that they've been promoting. It's kind of like the same thing, mm-hmm. but for underwater. So, what are they going to do? Gosh, it's in French. So, what are they going to do with the money? I guess that's my question. Well, they got fifteen updates on it, so we can go and look at that. Okay, they started August twelfth. Oh, they're just talking about where it's being covered in the news. Well, I'd like to. Yeah, do they? Uh, what are they going to do about the project? So I think they're trying to raise money just to build the prototype. So for 10 euros, you get your name on the Hall of Fame webpage. 25 euros, your name on the website and a T-shirt. 100 euros, and they don't even have an English translation for that one. That's probably the good one. Oh, and then they have another one where it says discover how to pilot Scoopster for 30 minutes, max depth 10 meters. Oh, I see what they did. They did one in English, one in French. Uh, pledge a thousand euros. Uh, they don't say. I can't. Re- I can't read that. Two thousand. They get you more French stuff. <laughs> oh, t- uh, two thousand or more. Rent ten days for a scuba diving club in Europe. Oh, so kind of like if you were a scuba diving club, you could do as a fundraiser. Rent ten days for a scuba diving club, huh? And they estimate to have this available in June twenty sixteen. That's cool. I'd, I'd ride in it. Oh, absolutely. Well, that does it for scuba in the news. We did get a little diving last week. Uh, let's see. Bob went out, was it last Saturday? Yeah. Did he go out and then was that to Havana B? Yes. Well, he, he did the Havana A, took a line to the B, and it's like, oh, it's really the same one. Yeah. They're just more exposed. Again, that's back like it was 30 years ago plus. Yeah. Because yeah, I dove it on Sunday. I went out with uh, uh, Jim Schultz. Uh, we had two boats. Uh, Kevin came out, brought his boat. Uh, and then I was on the boat with Jim, and we had John, who this is the first time I had an opportunity to dive with John. And we went down on the boat, and I did – I did one. I did, I popped up. I I my dive because John uh, was having some problems equalizing, so he didn't do a full dive on it. So I went back and then did a a pretty full dive. I got a little cold. I need to beef up my undergarments on my dry suit. Uh, I would, I'm actually a little bit warmer in a wetsuit, so I need to improve that. Uh, but it, it's like like you said, Bob said. I was on the. We went down the mooring, which is what we've been calling Havana B. And during the course of my dive, I was on what I would consider traditional Havana, and it didn't seem like I really moved that far. Uh, so, but it's it's that there's a lot there, and every time I dive, I see new things. Still not finding the dead eyes, uh, but just tons of decking, just a lot exposed. And the old and the A and the B is really one piece. I mean, you can uh, Bob had left his line down there, so you're able to follow it. Uh, conditions: if you didn't have gobies. It was probably 20 feet, but uh, realistically, 10 to 15. It's what? amazing how those little critters grew up the bottom. You know, you're five foot off, and they're getting out of your way, and they just, the, the bottom goes away. Well, and I think that might be part of their strategy, is that they kick it up and whatever predators after them. Yeah, can't see them. What is the rules for harvesting gobies? They're an invasive species, right? Yes. Can we take as many as we want? Yeah, but I don't know where you're going to take them. <laughs> well, what I'm well, 
Well, would, would they be like smelt? I mean, are they good eating? Uh, no. No? <laughs> I've not seen anybody do any kind of, uh, I'm going to take those home and eat them. I mean, they look like they're like a... They all, kind of... all I know is if they had bigger teeth, I would not dive out there. Because <laughs> there's thousands, they look like freaking piranha. Have they you ever could be. <laughs> open up their jaws and look at their teeth? They got a whole little serrated edges there. So oh. if they were much bigger, they'd be freaking dangerous and a little more aggressive. Well, I'm thinking I could make up a, like a little goby cannon, something that would just like suck them up. Because it, 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 it would improve visibility on that shipwreck if you didn't have those gobies. And they've got to be taking food away from the uh, from native species. Mm. And do you, I wonder if I'd have to have fish. I better it, it'd probably be safe to have a fishing license just to. Yeah, I would think so. Invasive. Okay, well that gives me an idea. Maybe something to to play around with. I'd like them to have a reason to be afraid of me. Darn it! <laughs> but it's been nice to get on Havana. I, I'm I'm about Havana'd out though, especially now that we realize it's the same wreck. Uh, not that there's some more documenting to do, but we really don't have a good plan on how to document it. If you're going to document it, you almost need to set up a grid system and do some drawing, and I just don't see anybody being that interested in it. To do it right, you do need all that coordination aspect. And, again, I don't see it right now. It's a known wreck. We know it's a rubble wreck. Uh, I just enjoy scrounging out there and see what I see. What it does for me is it takes the Havana from a one-tank half a day dive to a uh, two trip a year dive. You know, I can do two visits, two tanks, and I think that's fine. And I, and I, if you brought somebody who's never dove in the Great Lakes and you put them on that wreck, I think now it's something. Where before, even though it was old wood, it looked like a beam with a few boards off it. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot more story to tell. You could use that as an introductory to wreck diving. Because it has a lot of the important parts of a shipwreck, and you could describe it, and you could have, you know, here's what the the ship looked like before it sank. Here's the parts. Here's what you're going to see down there. They go down. They see it. They can touch it. So it's it's a good wreck. And there's not a lot of entrapment areas. Now, if you hit the Muskegon, which is, again, a nice wreck, it's shallow. There's a lot of obstructions that if you ever had a good day for visibility, you would love that wreck. It's a couple hundred feet. I mean, it's got the props still on it, shafts boilers so that's actually a better wreck and shallower but the visibility usually sucks out there yeah that, that's an early season wreck uh that's one if you're going to come in may ish i think there's about the best i've seen on that now we've had some the, the interesting thing about the muskegon is you can go dive that wreck and then we've done the break wall yes and had beautiful tropical visibility on the break wall which is freaking amazing. Oh, that is still some of the best viz, the best shallow viz I think I've seen in Lake Michigan has been there. Now, I understand that the club is talking about going out to Ann Arbor 5. It's not in stone because that's a dive you want to have two boats on just because of the distance from shore. It's a good five miles out there. And it's a deeper wreck, so you, you want to make sure if you're in a boat, you have plenty of line because if there's not a buoy on it, or a mooring, you're going to have to drop probably 250, 300 foot of line just to get down to snag it. Yeah, if you're going to dive it, you're de- definitely going to be taking a pony. I think most of the guys going out there will not let you dive if you do not have a pony with you. Yeah, I would I would recommend a pony. I've done it without a, a pony, uh, but with a, well, one time with a good dive buddy. The other, Well, I think I did have a pony now that I say, I say it. I, I've had a pony on there. Yeah, because even if you go down to 120 just to hit the props, which is a great photo op, uh, I still like having a bail op. Yeah. Oh, I, I think anytime you're over, 
Anytime you're over 80 feet, for me, that's about the point when, you know. If, if I'm over 50 anymore, I take a bailout. Yeah. Well, I'm it, not about doing free ascents. Yeah, I've done plenty of free ascents. On, well, not, not the free ascent you're talking about. You're talking about a out-of-air out of air, air ascent. Yeah, it's better not to do that. Yeah, because I think even Jim is saying either you got to have doubles or a large pony. Yep. So go with the go with the flow. And that's that may happen this weekend. I'm out of diving for the next two weekends because of the youth fair. I'm going to be making corn dogs as part of the Band Boosters program, raising money. The uh, the Bering Springs Fair. The best place to get corn dogs is a corn dog booth, which is run by Friends of Bering Springs, I believe, is what it is. And a lot of charities work there. A lot of churches, uh, uh, like, like the Band Boosters, Optimus Clubs. There's uh, quite a few that work out of that, and they do a lot of good things out of there. So if you happen to be there, say hi, buy a corn dog. It's still the best price for a corn dog, too. You going to go to the fair at all this year? I will make the attempt. Next week is my busy, busy week. So I still intend to. I'd like to go in the evening. I always like it when they turn the lights on. Oh, yeah. It's more atmospheric there, you know, you get that flavor. Yeah. Yeah, you got the carnival rides all going. Uh, no games a chance. That's probably if you're you know, if you're into the, you know, putting money in and knocking stuff over, you don't you don't get those at the youth fair. But other than that, it's everything you get at fair. Kids are showing again, but they need me less than they do normally, so that's why I'm working the corn dog booth. But I'll be off of work. If you like the show, go ahead and leave us a five-star review on iTunes. We also had one review on TalkShoe. I think it's a re-review. So I'm pretty sure this is uh, Vacayville Mark. I think he's out of California. It says, great podcast, fun, consistent broadcast, knowledgeable cast. Let me see if I can find. I think he's had, he had another one a few years back. Oh, no, no, I don't. That was the first one he's done on here. Must be I remember him from iTunes. So we love those reviews. They help people discover the show. Traffic's been up for some reason. I'm going to say it's because summer's winding out to an end. In North America, school has started, especially in some of the southern states. South Carolina and Georgia had some schools that have already started. In Michigan, we won't start back to school until after Labor Day. But it still amazes me that they will have played like Edwardsburg two football games before school starts. Yeah, they you got to fit them in. They, they keep adding games to the season. Well, if you're going to be a big man on campus, you'd like to have a freaking campus while you're playing football. Yeah. You, you can sit around and show your stuff. Yeah. And how do you have a prep rally if you don't have any school yet? Yeah, that used to be like the first week of school. You used to have the big prep rally before the first home game of the year, and they don't get that anymore. And that's that's unusual. Well, I'd like to thank WRVO Radio for putting us on the air. You can listen to us and other outdoor programs on WRVO Radio, the Rena Viola Outdoor Network. And uh, you also can get us on Stitcher. I think if you put in Scuba on Stitcher, if they still have that, that search box, we should be one of the first results for you. you have anything you want to plug, Mac? No, sir, but if you are getting out there, you know, stay safe. Uh, and if you're not getting out there and you're a diver, why not? Yeah, this is perfect weather. It can't get much better than this. Yeah, pretty soon you're going to be bitching about the hard water. Yep, you're going to be needing a chisel and a chainsaw. Don't say we didn't warn you. Okay, well, I think it's time for that time of the show. I think these are going to be agriculture-related in honor of the fair that's coming up. Okay, so here's one I think somebody's that some of our farming friends might recognize. Old rancher owner John farmed a small ranch in Montana. 
The Montana Wage and Hour Department claimed he was not paying proper wages to his workers sent an agent to interview him. I need a list of your employees and how much you pay them, demanded the agent. Well, replied old John, there's my ranch hand who's been with me for three years. I pay him 600 a week plus free room and board. The cook has been here for 18 months and I pay her $500 a week plus free room and board. Then there's the halfwood who works for 18 hours every day, does about 90% of the work around here. He makes about $10 per week. He pays his own room and board. I buy him a bottle of bourbon every Saturday night. That's the guy I need to talk to. The halfwood, says the agent. That would be me, replies the old rancher. Yeah, if you're, if I'm not you're, sure if that's really funny or not, because quite often <laughs> that's the truth. <laughs> that is. I had. Uh, well, I, I know lots of farmers. And one of them, gosh, this was in the 90s, because I'd, I'd been doing computers an awful long time. Since the late 70s, I started in the computer industry. But in the, no, this is probably about mid-80s, I was talking to one guy, and he said that his father, very early on in the state of Michigan, MSU, had done a program where they were computerizing farms to see if that would be an advantage to farmers to understand what their costs and things were. And they spent two years doing it, and he finally told him he had to stop because it was too depressing. He had one year where it cost him $2 per hour for every hour he worked. <laughs> yeah, that's incentive. Yeah. Yeah, you just have, there's just, there's just, sometimes there's really no answer. Okay, here, here's a good one. I think you'll like this. There's a young man named Ahmed who had bought a donkey from an old farmer, Fork, for $100. The farmer agreed to deliver the donkey the next day. When Fork drove up the next day, he said, I'm sorry, but I got some bad news. The donkey's on my truck, but he's dead. Ahmed replies, well, then just give me the money back. Uh, I can't do that, uh, says the farmer. I went out and spent it already. Ahmed sighs, okay, just unload the donkey anyway. Fork then asked, what are you going to do with the dead donkey? Ahmed laughs. He says, I'll, I'll raffle him off. The, the farmer exclaims, you can't raffle off a dead donkey. Ahmed, with a big smile on his face, says, sure, I can. Watch. Just don't tell anybody the donkey's dead. A month later, the farmer... Fork meets up with Ahmed and asks, whatever happened to the dead donkey? Ahmed answers, I raffled him off. I sold 500 tickets at $2 each, and I made a huge profit. Totally amazed, the farmer inquires, didn't anyone complain that you stole their money because you lied about the donkey being dead? The only one who ever found out the donkey being dead was the raffle winner, chuckled Ahmed. So when he came to claim his prize, I gave him his $2 back plus $200 extra, which is double the going value for a dead donkey, so... He thought I was a great fellow. And you were figuring how we're going to make more money. <laughs> yeah. So we need to find us a dead donkey. Well, I think on that one, we'll have to say go out and get wet. And stay safe. <laughs>